Bring the love of Wisconsin's outdoors in through the beauty and quality craftsmanship of Pella Windows and Doors. Lock in your prices by February 28th and get 0% interest for up to 48 months. Visit PellaWI.com. Certain restrictions apply. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Come join the conversation on the Old National Bank Talk and Text Line. Old National Bank. Get old. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. So glad to have you with us. Okay, at the outset, let me say that the next three hours, with the exception of what I'm going to say in the first couple minutes of the program, are going to be a Tom Brady, Aaron Rodgers free zone. We are not going to be discussing this, and I understand everybody's talking about the news that Tom Brady says he's going to retire, and this time it's for real, and people are speculating on what does this mean for Aaron Rodgers. Here, here, here's the the bottom line. There's all sorts of good theories. Aaron Rodgers won't won't retire the same year that Tom Brady retires because then they'd go into the Hall of Fame at the same time, and Aaron Rodgers' ego won't let him play second fiddle to Tom Brady. I th- that may all be true, but here, here's the bottom line: Aaron Rodgers is not going to retire this year. I don't know whether he's going to be coming back to the Packers or not, or whether he's going to be traded in June. But he's not going to retire. Why? It's not because Tom Brady's retired. No, no, no. Aaron Rodgers is scheduled to make $58 million, guaranteed. And those are 58 million reasons why he is coming back. I understand he's got generational wealth, but he's Aaron Rodgers has done nothing over the course of his career, which suggests that he is ever willing to leave money on the table, right? At, at every opportunity that he has had to, okay, maybe take salary cuts so the Packers would have more latitude to put people around him. He has declined to do that. And I'm not criticizing him for that, but Aaron Rodgers has always been about Aaron Rodgers and about making money. And he has a chance for one more big payday. Maybe if they negotiate a, a trade, he can go to a new team and say, hey, I want to play for an extra couple of years and renegotiate and get some more money. But he's not going to walk away from $58 million. And that's that's just the bottom line of this. So I don't know whether he plays for the Packers or they work out a trade or not, but the bottom line is he, he's, he's not going anywhere, period. And it has nothing to do with Tom Brady. It has to do with $58 million. Okay, let's get started. We have a lot of ground to cover on today's program Local issues, state issues, national issues, serious issues, fun issues, all that is coming up. A follow-up now to a story that we talked a lot about when it first happened. Let me take you back to the afternoon of October 10th, about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and an incident happens that goes viral. There is, you will remember, a 63-year-old man who is captured on a cell phone video holding a young black man. Now, it looks like he's a kid. The The man that's being held is, is actually like 24 years old and apparently has some developmental disabilities or whatever. But the guy is seen on a video. He's holding the young black male by the by the neck. He's, he's got his hand around his throat, and he's on the cell phone. He's on his cell phone. He is calling the police to report the fact that bicycles have been stolen and he thinks that this this particular young man i was going to say kid but he's 24 years old thinks that he was involved what happens is that a, a passerby sees this stops and starts recording this and says hey you you gotta 
you, you got to let him go. It, let, let him go. You shouldn't be holding him like that. And the man does. Okay, he then he then releases him and, and lets him go. This incident, and I hate the phrase goes viral because it's such a cliche, but it, it does go viral. There's no physical struggle that's going on. There's no fights. There's no injuries to anybody involved here. But you do have that, that moment where you have the 63-year-old guy who's got his hand around the neck of the, as it turns out, 24-year-old black man. Um, the the guy, the, the kid, the kid, the 24-year-old man, he keeps saying, I, I didn't steal the bicycles. I, I didn't see the, the bicycles. Um, what happens then is t- no harm, no foul. Everybody goes about their business. Two days after the incident, the man's mother calls police to return two bikes that did not belong to her and her family, bikes that had, in fact, been, been stolen. Um, she said they might have been stolen and that her son may have had something to do with it. Police retrieved the bicycles, ended up returning them, and and that's pretty much the end of of this, except for the fact that this video is now gone. Like I say, it's gone viral, and there's all sorts of pressure in the community brought to issue charges against the 63-year-old guy who was restraining the young man while he's calling the police to report the, the bicycle theft. So that's kind of the background. After, after there is community pressure to issue charges. What happens is the DA's office comes in and they do, in fact, you know, issue charges against the guy. Well, those charges were resolved yesterday. Um, he apparently enters a, mi- a guilty plea to a misdemeanor disorderly conduct citation. citation. So he pleads guilty, it's a misdemeanor. And it stipulates, though, as a condition of this guilty plea, it's it's essentially a conditional plea. Um, he agrees to participate in a restorative justice program run by the Milwaukee County District Attorney's Office. He agrees to complete 15 hours of community service and write a letter of apology to the guy whose neck he grabbed. That, that, so that's essentially it. If he does that within six months... The um, charge, which is a misdemeanor, which is a crime, will be amended down to a county ordinance violation. And so no criminal conviction. Um, conviction of the misdemeanor offense comes with 90 days imprisonment and up to $1,000 in fines. But if he does all this, number one, he, he won't do any jail time. And, and number two, the conviction will not be criminal. Again, it's just going to be an ordinance violation. And as the Journal Sentinel points out, deferred prosecutions are typically offered to defendants considered to have a low risk of reoffending and allows them to avoid criminal convictions in exchange for um, good behavior. Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. So that's how this matter is resolved. My question is, is justice being done? And I guess you can look at this a couple ways. Should the DA's office not have gone along with the disorderly conduct uh, with this with this deferred prosecution agreement? Should they have said, no, this is terrible. This guy has to go to jail. The 63-year-old man needs to have a conviction on his record for this. Or alternatively, should the DA's office have stayed out of this completely? 
And the argument would be, well, I mean, if you're not going to try to really drop the hammer on him, what what good is is this? Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. All right, what do you think about this resolution of the matter? Was it too harsh? Was it too lenient? Or was it just right? 855-616-1620. We discuss in just a moment. 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Okay, so this appears how this incident from October is going to resolve itself. The... 63-year-old man who detains the the 24-year-old man who looks a lot younger because he believes he is involved in stealing bikes. There were some bikes stolen in the neighborhood. I don't think there's any evidence that the 24-year-old the stole them, but it sure sounds like some of his buddies stole the bikes. But we don't, you know, don't know that for sure. But anyhow, he calls it in. He detains the guy while he is calling the police. Uh, he's now been charged because there's incredible community pressure to charge him and I think because some people wanted to perceive this as a racial sort of thing, but now it's been resolved with a deferred prosecution agreement where if the guy goes through um, the restorative justice program and does 15 hours of community service, uh, essentially the charges go away. Is that is that too light? Is that too harsh? Is that just about right? Dan in St. Francis. Dan, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. As a former prosecutor, I think you probably know this. I call this the tag-off effect where the DA's office is stuck in the middle, because charges have to be referred to the DA's office by the police, and I've done that for 30 years. So I think this is the no police chief wants to make that decision, goes, we'll tag off on the DA, and we'll make them make the hot potato choice. Right, right. But, okay, so what about this? I mean, should the DA have issued charges? And then once they issue the charges, should they have essentially given them away with the deferred prosecution agreement? Well, I think that's probably where it turned out. One, personally, do I think he should have been charged? No, but it does violate the letter of the law. You have a police agency bring it in. And I think then the only thing that you have is the discretion is to say, well, then how can we make everybody whole and not criminalize a 63-year-old guy? So I think in the end it turned out okay, but did it ever have to go this far is, I guess, the big question. No, Dan, thanks for the call. I I, I agree with you. That I mean, here's how I kind of look at this. I think... I, I clearly, I, I do not think this is too, um, I, I don't think it's it's certainly too lenient a, a result. I, I think that if it were not for the community pressure, my guess is charges would never have been issued in the first place. But this was the district attorney's office, I think, kind of caving into the community activists and the things and, and like that. Um, at the same time, it is difficult because if we're telling people in a community, we, we want you to get involved, you know, see something, you know, say something. Here you have a guy who is admittedly, he, he's restraining somebody, but he's restraining somebody who believe, he believes has been actively involved in a crime. There's no physical injuries. There's no struggles. There's nothing like that. My guess is 98% of the time in similar situations, were it not for the community activists getting involved, there wouldn't have been charges in the first place. Um, certainly not against the guy who was trying to call in and say, hey, I, I think I've got this guy, this guy that's been involved in, in stealing the, the bikes. Now, it turns out, I think that there's not evidence to support that, although stolen bikes end up at his mother's house or a couple days later, but that doesn't mean the 24-year-old took them. But 
I think in many cases this would be a no harm, no foul situation were it not for pressure from community activists. So having made that decision, then the DA's office, I think to pursue it and try to put this guy in jail or something like that, I think that would have been complete and total overkill. So this is a way of of maybe trying to make everybody happy um, and just kind of make the matter go away. It's tough for me to argue that the justice was not served in this case. I certainly don't see incarcerating the 63-year-old man. I mean... It, he's he's going to actually have more consequences than probably 90% of the people who steal cars in the city of Milwaukee. Uh, 855-616-1620. Mike in Illinois. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon, Jeff. How are you? Good. What do you think? Yeah, so, I mean, I've kind of gone back and forth on it. Um, it sounds like he wasn't trying to hurt the person. He was specifically trying to restrain him, and maybe the way he was doing it, um, wasn't that great, but as you said, there were no injuries done, and it sounds like even if this guy didn't physically steal it, I bet you he knew about it and was somewhat involved in a bike theft ring. Um, obviously, that wasn't proven, but if a mom is calling the police and telling them, um, he probably was. Um, I don't know. Other than the restorative justice piece, which I question that highly, um, the crime or the penalty he has to pay doesn't seem that bad. It might even you know, yeah. do him some good in some ways. I don't want to stop people from getting involved, like just like you right. said about see, see something, say something. If you see something and you have a chance to restrain somebody so the police can get them, I don't see anything wrong with that. Yeah, thanks, thanks for calling, Mike. I mean, see, that's the that's the. I mean, that's the the dicey thing uh, about this particular situation, and it's one of the reasons why I don't think, quite honestly, you can take the racial component out of this. I mean, I, I seriously wonder if this had been. A, a 63-year-old black man, res- same situation, restraining the, the 24-year-old black youth, or vice versa, if it had been a 63-year-old white male restraining a, a white youth, would would this have been viewed the the same way? And I, we, when we talked about this, when you know when we, this issue first came up, and, and this is, and I remember a number of you called in and all, had stories from your youth about how you know there, there were kids out TPing. Maybe it was like you know you were out TPing somebody's house, tried to run away, and the father came out and grabbed you and held you and called your parents or called the cops or or similar things like that. This is this is not something that doesn't happen uh, with, with some degree of, of frequency. Now, uh, again, you can't take the racial component out of this. Again, I, I look at this. I think the DA's office was very much in the middle. They're getting pressure from community activists because of the respective races of the people. you got to issue charges. But at the same time, I mean, like I say, there, there's real criminals and there's real people operating with real criminal intent here. I think you look at that 63-year-old man and maybe you should say, well, okay, maybe he should have just called the police. He shouldn't have restrained the guy. Maybe he shouldn't have grabbed the kid around the neck. Maybe he should have held him by the shoulder. Well, you can make those arguments, but this this is not a situation where there's there's manifest in my opinion criminal intent going on here. There's a guy who believes correctly incorrectly we don't know that the young man has been involved in some in in one way shape or form or another has been involved in these bike thefts that have been going on and he's trying to just intervene 855-616-1620 let's talk to mike and kohler mike you're on wtmj hey how you doing hi what do you think well again i i think it's too much Especially if there's 
no ramification to the man who uh, ended up taking the bikes or the bikes magically ended up at his mother's house. Uh, I, I really think if there's going to be some effort made, there should have been some effort made uh, on behalf of the, uh, the people who are bikes are being stolen because clearly that man had something to do with it. They didn't end up at his mother's house back. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for calling, Mike. And again, I, I don't, I, I don't, I don't know. Um, I, I don't know what what happened. There's no. There's never been any sort of charges that were issued. I don't know that any of the bikes were actually ever reported as stolen. But I mean, of course, th- this is the city of Milwaukee. You know, you, you, your car gets stolen, and you know, maybe the cops will show up three or four days later. So, I, I mean, and I, and I, don't, I certainly don't want to accuse the 24 year old guy of being involved in this because there's no evidence to, to do that. But at the same time, I, there there wasn't. There wasn't criminal intent on the part of the 63-year-old guy. Jeff, I think if the 63-year-old guy would have just been holding the guy by the shirt instead of the neck, I think there would be no charges. Um, yes, Jeff, forcing someone to write a letter of apology is idiotic if they aren't truly remorseful. I don't think the guy is, nor do I think he should be. Jeff, here's the problem. The older gentleman has no right to grab someone, especially by the neck, because he thinks the young man is stealing bikes without evidence. I mean, the cops can't even do that without a crime being committed. Um, Jeff, I think this is a clear case of mind your own business because this is what happens with the law. Uh, well, that's, I mean, again, that's the, that's the, that's the issue that, that comes up here. Let's, let's take out of the category of, let's take it out of the category of the, the bike theft. Let's say that you are you're a patron in the convenience store, right? You're in the convenience store, and you see a guy who robs the convenience store, you know, reaches in, grabs the money in the till, starts to run out, and you and one of the other people that's with you in the convenience store, before you get out the door, you tackle him. And you, the two of you hold the guy down on the floor, preventing him from fleeing while the convenience store owner calls the cops. Okay, well, you have you have detained him. You have held him down. Are are we going to issue are you going to issue disorderly conduct charges against against the people, you know, if you've stopped them? Now, I understand this factual situation is a little bit is different. I I get it. I mean, it's not like there was an active crime that was going on and, and he came upon it in the middle. But where, where do you draw the line? In my example, if the two guys in the convenience store who take down the robber and hold him, would you charge him? Would you charge him with that? And I don't think any responsible prosecutor would say, yeah, we're going to charge them with disorderly conduct for catching the, the robber. Now, that's the one more extreme than the example I'm giving, but it's it's where this becomes a slippery slope. I guess the bottom line is I certainly don't think that this was too lenient a result. I think that there was some politics that went on in this, but I think regardless of whether or not you agree with the charges, it's tough to argue that the disposition of this case wasn't appropriate. I really am so very glad to have you with us. Okay. Snowstorm over the weekend. Eight inches of snow or thereabouts in the city of Milwaukee, which creates a huge issue when it comes to parking because lots and lots of people park on the streets overnight. Well, um, there is a rule 
in Milwaukee that's been in place for forever that if they declare a snow emergency, you can't park on the streets from 10 at night till 6 in the morning. And that's because they've got to get snow plows out and they've got to be able to clear the streets. And if you think about it, 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 it makes sense. If they need to get the snow plows through and you've got people that are parked on the streets, well, then they have to try to navigate around. It makes the job more difficult when the priority, of course, is getting the roads cleared, right? So, so that's the issue. So they have these rules that say, no parking overnight when there's a snow emergency. And then after the snow emergency goes away, there's still restrictions on, you know, which side of the street you can park on and things like that. But but the bottom line is during a snow emergency, no overnight parking. And I admit it creates a problem for people who rely on you know parking on the city streets and stuff. But it's just it's what comes with the territory. So the first night that this happened, the estimates were that about 2,000 citations were issued to people who were illegally parked during the snow emergency. Now that the snow emergency is over, the estimate is the city of Milwaukee issued over 5,300 citations, over 5,300 citations for unlawful parking during the snow emergency. Now, one of the things that, that's a little bit it, it, that comes with an asterisk about this is apparently one of the things that happens is when there is a snow emergency that's issued, uh, typically they will send out a, an alert, a system wide, the DPW will send out a, a system wide alert telling people snow emergency. Now, there, there's all sorts of other ways you find out that there's a snow emergency, including you know, looking out your window or listening to the radio or turning on the television set or whatever and say, hey, it's snowing like heck. Um, I, I Maybe I should check this out. But the DPW will also send out these text alerts. Apparently, there was a problem and some of the text alerts did not go out due to a system-wide issue. They were unable to send out parking text alert notifications. So there arguably could have been some people who said, well, I, I didn't I didn't get the text alert, so I had no idea that there was the snow emergency, so I didn't know that I was not allowed to park my car on the street overnight, and now I've got this ticket. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Old National Bank talk and text line. Now, there's always this issue that comes up when you have aggressive enforcement of parking rules. And, you know, and we've over the years I've been on the air, you know, we, we've talked about this from time to time. There were certain areas. I'm not sure that this is the case anymore, but there were certain areas a number of years ago in Milwaukee where you'd have parking inspectors that, that would just they would chicken hawk parking meters. They, they would just wait for, oh, you're at an hour a meter here. I see that's going to expire in a couple minutes. I'm going to wait. And then as soon as that hits an hour, I'm going to write the ticket. There, there was some of that, that that went on, in part because there was at least a period of time. And I'm not saying it exists now, but there was a period of time where while they didn't, where they refused to acknowledge that there were quotas, in all practical, for all practical purposes, there were quotas. If you had a particular, for example, parking checker who wasn't writing as many tickets as the DPW thought they should be writing, well, that, that parking checker could, could be 
in trouble. So there was no incentive for using sort of common sense or anything like that. And so yet you had this huge issue. Now, that that's I don't know that that still exists. That was a problem a number of years ago. But there's always this revenue thing that goes on because clearly the city, you know, they have an interest in writing parking tickets because they, they get revenue. In this particular case, though, it is different because you have a snow emergency that's going on. And if the streets aren't cleared, it's a really royal pain in the you-know-what to get rid of the snow. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the old National Bank talk and text line. All right, so 5,300 citations issued. Some of those people were probably signed up to get text alerts, didn't get text alerts saying that there was a snow emergency. Is that is that a justification for them getting out from under the, the tickets? Do you think that the Milwaukee DPW was overboard in issuing all these citations? Or, hey, when it's snowing and you're getting a lot of snow, if you park on the street, do you have an obligation to know that you got to do something with your car? 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line we discuss in just a moment. 855-616-1620, which is the old National Bank talk and text line. If you're just tuning in, um, over, over the weekend... Snow emergency um, in the city of Milwaukee, which means you can't park on the streets overnight. Why? Well, because they need the snow plows to, to get through. And over 5,300 people got citations from the Department of Public Works. It turns out that, that when there's a snow emergency that is declared, one of the things DPW does is they send a text alert to people who have signed up for this saying, there's a snow emergency, don't park on the streets. Well, they had a problem with their system, so those text alerts I don't think went out, or at least they didn't go out like they intended. So does, does that make a difference? Were parking checkers overly aggressive in this particular case? 855-616-1620, which is the old National Bank talk and text line. And if you have listen to my program over the years, you know that I have no love lost for what I think have been over the years excesses by the Department of, of Public Works, particularly when it comes to overly aggressing, aggressive parking enforcement done as a revenue generator as much as, as anything else. Having said that, I, I'm sorry, I have no sympathy to at least to the overwhelming majority of people who, who got citations. Look, it's... If if you live in urban areas, if you live in the city of Milwaukee, it is not an unusual thing. You know, or you should know, that hey, you know, when it snows, you you have to do something with your car, and you've got to get it off the street. And th- this idea, I, I'm sorry, if I'm a municipal judge, I am not sympathetic to, gee, judge, I I didn't get the text alert from the DPW. I saw. My neighbors moving their cars. I saw that it was snowing like you know what, but I didn't get the DPW notice, so I, how was I supposed to know that I had to do something with the car? No, not too sympathetic there. 855-616-1620. Jeff, if these people didn't move their cars, it's ultimately on them, not on the city, to send out some text message. The weather predicted a lot of snow, so if you live in Milwaukee, it's known that you'll have to, have to plow the roads out. I personally know a gal who received a ticket. It was 50 bucks. Her excuse was that 
they didn't plow the road enough for her to get out of the spot. It was quite funny reading that on Facebook yesterday. Jeff, I've got no sympathy for those who were ticketed. I used to get one ticket per week when I lived in this apartment off Brady Street for seven months. Also had my car towed in graduate school when I had three papers due the following Monday. I didn't fight the fines in any of these circumstances because I was the one who made the mistake for not paying attention or not caring about the street signs. Uh, Jeff, no sympathy on this one. I would have questioned why I didn't get a text and checked in with some of the other outlets. Right. And and by the way, one of those outlets is the window. You, you look out and you go, my God, it, it's it's snowing. And they do have, I mean, on most of the streets, there's signs up that talk about winter parking rules and things like that. I'm sorry, this is a situation where ignorance of, even if you somehow didn't get the notification that there was a full-scale, you know, winter snow emergency. Okay, you can tell that it's snowing. You can also tell that it's a lot of snow. Maybe maybe if this was a situation where we got an inch and a half of snow, it, maybe you could be more sympathetic if they declared this. But this, look, everybody knew the snow plows had to come out, and everybody knew that this was going to happen. Jeff, snow emergencies and associated extra parking restrictions have existed for over 60 years, and public notice years ago, long before mobile phones, only could be disseminated via radio and TV, so people need to pay attention, text alert or not. I think those ticketed need to pay, but I suspect, like with other serious violations in Milwaukee, many won't. Jeff, what did people do before text messages? All this boils down to a lack of common sense, which keeps increasingly growing in the country. All right, here's one of our textures. This is kind of off topic, but it's an interesting one because it does kind of bootstrap with what I think is from time to time over-aggressive enforcement of parking rules. I don't think that was the case over the weekend, but this is it. Jeff, speaking of parking uh, checkers, I parked my motorcycle on 81st and Greenfield by State Fair Park last year, and a West Alice parking checker gave me a ticket on the motorcycle for being six inches too close to the driveway apron. They actually pulled a tape measure out and gave me a $40 ticket. Uh, yeah, now see, that's th- that's the kind of stuff that, that drives me crazy, and it's the kind of stuff that I, I think it's why it, it breeds dissatisfaction. Um, leaving your car during a snow emergency when there's 8 or 10 inches of snow on the streets so the plows can't get through, well, okay, no sympathy. You deserve what you get, and if that means you get a ticket, I'm sorry, you got to live with that. Parking within six inches of a driveway and they have to pull out the tape measure to measure it, eh, um, that's a, that is a completely um, different sort of situation. Jeff, I don't live in the city of Milwaukee, and I knew there was a snow emergency that night. Yes, 855-616-1620. Tim in Oshkosh. Tim, you're on WTMJ. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for having me on. Sure. Um, I just like to say, I just like to say how you know Milwaukee kind of has a good. Um, I'm in a touring band, and uh, you know I was in Minneapolis once during a snow emergency, and I wasn't aware of it. And my van got towed and ticketed, and um, it was to get it the next day. I watched a parade of tow trucks from different companies around the city just going rabid just to pull all these yeah. cars out and make the money on it. So it's you know you talk about talking with parking. Um, you know, officials, it's it's even crazier in other big cities how they'll just, you know, yeah. make you go the extra mile. And you have to ride a tram to get, you know, your car from, oh, like, yeah. uh, you know, a oh, no. parking lot. No, no, th- thanks for the call, Tim. Yeah, it, it's, it, it, is, it is an issue that's out there. 
And uh, there, there's no question. I mean, look, there's a revenue component to this. I, I, I get it. But when it comes to the snow emergencies, uh, that's that, that that is a valid thing. Giving somebody giving somebody a ticket because they stay five minutes too long at a parking meter. Eh, you know, that that's one where you got to say, I would think would be like no harm, no foul. It's a revenue sort of thing. On the other hand. When it snows, you got to get your cars off the streets so the snow plows can get through. Jeff, street parkers need to know the city ordinances. If in doubt, move your car. These laws have been in place long before messages and uh, cell phones. You know, one of our listeners says, Jeff, I understand, but with no parking in Milwaukee, it's a long walk. Um, So with this much snow, you know, where do you park? Well, okay, that, that is a fair question. And I don't, I don't claim to know the answer to it, but, but here's the deal. If you are a street parker in Milwaukee, for the sake of argument, you know it is going to snow, or you should know it's going to snow at some point in time. So you have to have that backup plan. Now, I, I, don't, I don't know what it is, whether it's like a, a school parking lot down the corner or whether it's a church parking lot down the corner. I don't know what the answer is. Um, when I lived in the city of Milwaukee a long time ago, I mean, I, I parked. I had a place that had, there was a parking lot. There was a parking garage that, that was attached to that. Uh, but you know, it, it's your responsibility. You can't just leave that car on the street because, again, the snow plows cannot come through, and then that creates all sorts of issues. Or you get your your car plowed in, and then you know, good luck trying to get it out um, when the the temperature goes down to ten degrees below zero. Now, in this particular case, I'm going to cut the DPW some slack, regardless of whether the text messages went out or not. You make me laugh. Jeff, here's a text. My favorite text of the day so far. The street parkers should just, the, the people who park on the street during snow emergencies should just purchase Kia and Hyundai cars, and then they won't have to worry about their car being in the street. There is an element of truth to that. Don't want to get the ticket? Just, I don't know, buy a Kia, buy a Hyundai, leave that on the street. See how long that's going to go. Jeff, on the parking ticket question, it's just another example of people who feel it's not my fault, it's someone else's fault. Give me a break. Jeff, a couple major problems here. Since the city has decided to keep developing more and more and more and more apartment living in certain downtown areas, there's no way out of this mess. All these apartment people have nowhere to go with their cars. I think the city needs to develop a plowing plan and figure out times when they will be on certain streets so people know when their cars um, have to be off. Otherwise, it's a crapshoot. Now, see, I I mean, I I disagree. I, I think... During and I, as I've said this repeatedly, whatever criticisms I have of public services from time to time, I think we do snow really well around here. I, I just I, I do. I think you know we get snowstorms which would paralyze some communities, and I think we we deal with them well. But the problem is when that's happening, you can't expect the city to say, "Okay, we're going to be plowing your street between one and two o'clock in in the afternoon." So that's the window you have to get your car out. If you're going to own a car in the city of Milwaukee, 
you have to, I think, make those arrangements. What am I going to do if there's a situation where there's a snow emergency? You know you're going to have to have the car off the street for it, it might be as much as a couple days, and I think it falls on you to have what that backup plan is. Jeff, I drove a plow in Milwaukee for 14 winters. With large equipment, it's a bigger problem for the driver than people think, especially when a block is lined with cars parked correctly and you have a handful of people parked wrong. And then someone complains about the way things are plowed. If I had it up to me, I would have plowed in some of those people in a fashion that they would never forget. But I bit my lip and did my job. Yeah, I mean, look, the snowplow drivers have enough going on without having to worry about let's try to navigate around cars that are illegally parked. When we come back, I want to talk about the latest developments in the case of this automobile accident collision that that led to the death of the one-year-old. The facts get worse and worse. And I have a message to one of the people running for the state Supreme Court. Come on, man. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. So glad to have you with us. Uh, Reports are that the jury in the Mark Jensen case has reached a verdict. Um, Our intention is to bring that verdict to you. I'm I'm being told that they anticipate it might be read within the next half hour or so. The uh, case, three and a half weeks of, of trial closing statements and the jury was instructed yesterday the jury began deliberations to cut a couple hours in and then came back today i you know a lot of times i i have a i have a good sense having done this for a long time i have a good sense of where jury is going to go this this is one that candidly i i think could go any way um i think everybody knows that this story by now uh julie jensen and her husband mark had a very tumultuous relationship she had apparently had an affair he was having an affair um he apparently started researching things like poisoning you know (laughs) you know what you know what's the effect of antifreeze and stuff like that and she um, became concerned for her life. You know, she, you know, told friends, she told a police officer, hey, if something happens to me, you know, it, it's Mark that did it. And, and she ends up, she ends up dead. And the prosecution's theory is that she was poisoned by antifreeze. She was given antifreeze and then ultimately, um, suffocated. The defense theory, the Mark Jensen theory, is that, no, look, she, she set him up. She was suicidal. She was upset that he was having this affair, etc. She killed herself and tried to set him up. Now, uh, the case went to trial, and he was convicted in 2008, which was several years after the actual murder, and he was convicted based on a case that is, ex- is completely circumstantial, and and you know some people say, well, it's circumstantial evidence, you know that, but well, circumstantial evidence can be just as compelling as, as quote unquote direct evidence. The law makes no distinction, um, but in this particular case, the I think the most compelling evidence, in all fairness, that was introduced against him was her statements from beyond the grave, her her statements to people saying, if something happens to me, it, it's Mark that did it. Well, after he was convicted, there were a series of appeals, and ultimately the courts ruled that those statements 
um, that she had made, saying if something happens to me, I it, it's him that did it, that they were unduly prejudicial, that they were improperly admitted, and so there was a new trial that was ordered. So again, the conviction is 2008, now it's 2023. It was always a difficult prosecution, and as I've said before, trying to re-prosecute somebody 15 years after the original trial, that's that's tough because witnesses forget things, witnesses die, witnesses move away. So it's always been, I think, a, a difficult prosecution. And I, I, I take no position on guilt or innocence. I, I, I don't know. But this has always been a very, very difficult case. And I, I wouldn't be surprised to, to see the verdict go in either way. I think some of the key pieces of evidence are going to be the autopsy report and, you know, how how strong the state's evidence is that she was suffocated, because obviously, if you're going to kill yourself, you, you don't suffocate your, yourself. Uh, but but again, I, I don't know. I, I didn't follow the trial that closely, but it's uh, it's it's a it's a tough one. It's a tough one both ways. Mark Jensen has been in custody um, since his conviction in 2008, and even when there was a new trial that was awarded, they, di- they didn't let him out. So he has been incarcerated. I mentioned this yesterday, and I want to be, be real careful with what I say, but I actually I got quite a response from people who had been on juries. Mark Jensen did not testify, and juries are instructed that you cannot take the fact that somebody did not testify, uh, uh, you cannot hold that against them. The burden of proof is exclusively on the government, exclusively on the state, to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. And under the Fifth Amendment, people do not have an obligation to testify, and you can't hold it against them. That's what jurors are are always told. I have always wondered, in my own mind, as as a prosecutor, when you get into a jury room, what what do jurors actually think? And, And here's what I mean. I mean, I understand what the law is. I have no problems with the law, and I understand the instructions. But just, I, I think, I always kind of personalize this. And if I, I was saying this yesterday, if I was accused of a crime and I didn't do it, I would be on that witness stand screaming, I did not do this. I, that, that's just, that, that's me. But I think that's kind of human nature. So I've always wondered, regardless of instructions or things like that, whether or not jurors sit there and say, okay, we know we can't hold it against them, but if he didn't do it, why isn't he on the witness stand telling us he didn't do it? It was interesting because after I said that yesterday, I got a number of texts from people who were jurors saying, yeah, we know what the instructions were, but we were on juries, and you, you bet that's one of the things that we were thinking. Why why wasn't the guy testifying? Of course, Mark Jensen didn't testify, and there's lots of reasons why people don't testify, um, including it opens up avenues to all sorts of impeachment and things like that. So I, I don't I don't know how this is going to turn out. Um, I, I think, uh, again, I, I won't be surprised if it goes either either way. But it's certainly been, it was a trial that got a lot of attention when it first happened in 2008. And the retrial is getting a lot of attention as well. And we'll find out what the jury has decided based on the evidence in about 15 minutes. Hey, Wisconsin, it might be cold out right now, but soon it's going to be warming up and you'll need to get your home ready. That's why I'm here with the Wagner Home Improvement Showcase presented by our friends at Great Midwest Bank. And this week we're brought to you by the superheroes at Current Electric. To schedule a visit with them, you can call them 262-786-5885 
or go to their website. It's callcurrent.com. That's the Jeff Wagner Home Improvement Showcase on WTMJ. We've been doing this for a number of years, and we're just delighted to have a full range of sponsors back. We're I'm watching the live feed right now from the, the courtroom in the Jensen case. The jury has reached a, a verdict. Uh, the prosecution is there. The defendant is present. Uh, the judge is not back in yet, but once the judge gets back, they'll, they'll bring the jury in. Mike Spaulding, you, you've been following this pretty closely. Yeah. Um, what's, what's your sense of what's going on here? Well, this... I, I would say this. Initially, when this trial started, this retrial started, the judge said they thought it was going to go five weeks. It only ended up going about two weeks, so I don't know what that says about anything, you know, other than it, it went shorter, so I don't know if they were expecting surprise witnesses or anything like that. This has basically just been a retread of what happened in 2008, obviously minus that piece of evidence, that letter that Julie had purportedly written, um, but same, they showed a lot of footage from 2008. They, they rehashed as many witnesses that were still alive from then that were going to testify again. So I, I, I don't know if anything, if there's a smoking gun necessarily. I don't know how close attention, Jeff, you've been paying to it every day or not, but there didn't seem to be this aha moment, at least from what I was able to watch. Well, no, and it's always been, this has always been a, from a prosecution's perspective, it's always been a difficult sort of prosecution because the, the evidence is exclusively circumstantial. As I was saying a couple minutes ago, some people say, oh, the evidence is all circumstantial. Well, that doesn't make any difference. I mean, sometimes circumstantial evidence can be as compelling, if not more compelling, than quote-unquote direct evidence. But this has always been a, a difficult prosecution, which was one of the reasons, I mean, that this, you know, the the a murder, quote unquote, you know, occurred in the late 1990s. It took them a number of years to issue the charges and then a number of years for the original trial to happen. It's always been a difficult prosecution, a complicated prosecution with, with lots of moving parts. And I, I think clearly the, the letter from Julie, the statement beyond the grave, that was very compelling evidence in the first trial. And you wonder, absent that evidence, how is this all going to play out? Jeff, would you be surprised um, from from your background if he is convicted again or is uh, acquitted? I, I I would not be surprised. You know, a lot of times, Mike, as you know, I I, I make predictions uh, as to where I think it's going to go, and I'm almost always right with that. This one, I I just I don't know. I don't know how this is. I don't know how this is going to go at, at all. And I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised at, at either result. I think the prosecution has always had kind of an uphill battle. I see the judge is now back in the courtroom. Yeah, no sound yet from the courts. At least I don't believe there's no sound, anything anything going. Jeff, before we get back to it, I, when you're an attorney and you're retrying a case, is how do you convince the jury that what you saw and what you know of from 2008 is not, you, you can't even think about it again? Like, How do you get over that hurdle? Is it just you believe that this is happening or do you believe that, the jury's acting in their best interest? Well, you know, I mean, it is It is sort of interesting. It's kind of like with, with pretrial publicity. You know, the you know they always say, well, how can you get a fair and impartial jury, you know, when, when you have a case, like let's say like the Daryl Brooks case, where everybody, everybody is aware of this. And the truth of the matter is you, you, you're not going to find people who, who didn't know about the Daryl Brooks case. The, the question is you try to find people who say that even if we know about this, we're going to be able to, you know, judge the case fairly and impartially based on the evidence it's presented in the courtroom and i think this is kind of the same situation in picking a jury panel i mean i would 
I would be surprised that the jurors didn't hadn't at least heard about something like this. So that's it. So Mike Spaulding, not, not only a guilty verdict, but a guilty verdict in a relatively quick amount of time. Yeah, I think that's one thing that stood out to me, Jeff. We talked about the length of or the expected length of the trial, which was tentatively scheduled for five weeks. It did not, in fact, go that long at all. And the jury got the case about, I want to say, four o'clock last night. They had one question that they asked uh, to be clarified, and then they basically went home for the evening and debated since I believe about 8.30 this morning and, and came to a verdict that we want to say about a half hour ago. So no, not long at all. And I think that's what, I guess if you're reading the tea leaves, would probably not be good for Mark Jensen. You'd think if they were going to overturn something that I, I was tossed out, so, you know, was, was tossed out. But to go back over, I think if the longer it went, the better, I guess, if you're Mark Jensen, you would have felt about things. You know, it's going to be interesting, and I, I don't know if the jurors will do interviews, but uh, again, without without the, the statements from Julie Jensen, it would be interesting to see what, what they really honed in on. One of the things that I was listening to the trial was, again, the, the forensic evidence, because if, if the defense's theory is she killed herself and, and tried to frame her, you know, estranged husband, uh, if, if it's one thing to poison yourself, it's another thing you can't suffocate yourself. And so I guess that was that that's sort of I, I mean, I think that would be pretty compelling evidence. I will say this, Mike, I think this is um, the the prosecutor in this case, who is the former the special prosecutor, who is the former Kenosha County District Attorney. I, I think he deserves a, a lot of credit because I will tell you, as I was saying earlier, trying to recreate a prosecution that occurred 15 years ago on a murder that occurred, you know, 25 years ago or whatever. That that's that is not easy and I think it's a it's a testament to the prosecutor and the law enforcement um for for being able to recreate this case because generally speaking time is time does not work on the side of prosecutions and in this case they were certainly able to overcome that well not only that but they had to make their case without what was eventually ruled a very key piece of evidence that had to be thrown out as you mentioned in the the letter that Julie had uh, reportedly written warning her friends or saying, look, if I end up dead, Mark did it. You know, having to set all that aside and then present the case once again, I think that that was a bit of a challenge as well. Yeah, absolutely. So bottom line is the Mark Jensen jury is in with a verdict. He has been again convicted of first degree intentional homicide. We'll have more updates as the day goes on. Mike Spalding, thanks so very much. While we were taking the verdict in the Mark Jensen case, um, something in the world of finance went on. The Federal Reserve, which in an effort to curb inflation over the last year, kept raising the the interest rate um, and six consecutive interest rate raises, including um, three quarters of a point in November and a half a point in December in an effort to try to raise the cost of borrowing to make it more expensive to get money with the idea that this is going to help curb inflation. Um, they were out. They announced um, just a few minutes ago that they were going to do another interest rate increase. But this is going to be a quarter percentage point interest rate increase, which is smaller than, than the last six raises they had, indicating that I, I think they believe that inflation is starting to get under control. They issued some preliminary signals that there might be another increase in March. But again, they're, they're thinking it's going to be 
again, one of these smaller increases as opposed to having to have a half point increase or a three quarters percent increase, which makes a big deal for anybody who's taking out a car loan or a home loan or anything like that. So uh, there was a quarter percentage point increase, but uh, it could have been worse. The stock market is is responding. It's it's neither the Dow's down about a point. The Nasdaq is is just up slightly. So this was kind of expected. So no surprises today. During the break, I, I got an interesting question. We at, at the, the jury comes back. The judge reads the verdict. They find him guilty. He asks the sides if they want the jurors polled, and we 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 played that. What they do is. They um, they then you know, juror number one, you know, is this is was this is your verdict? And they, they say yes in the courtroom. And here, here's what our texter said. Jeff, in October, I served in a Waukesha County courthouse jury for a criminal crime of child sexual abuse in the second and third degree. Then, as now, I am puzzled by why you would poll the jury in any criminal case. The reason I say this is because the instructions that we were given by Judge Schimmel was that your verdict has to be unanimous to convict or the result will be a hung jury. In this case, when you poll the jury and the verdict has been given as guilty, what's the point? There's no basis for appeal, not from the jury being undecided. Can you enlighten me? I I will. And, and, And this is it because... The defense, in the case of of a guilty verdict, they are are hoping, and it's the equivalent of a Hail Mary pass, but they are hoping that one of the jurors might have changed their mind in the time that it took to tell tell the the judge he had a verdict, and they actually read it. Now, does this happen in real life? I never had it happen, but almost. I will tell you a story. A number of, oh gosh, this is... Sometime in the 1980s, and I was trying a case in front of the late Terry Evans, who was a federal federal judge. It was the week, this true story, it was the week of Thanksgiving. And this was a case involving a guy who was what we used to call tax protesters. It, it was a person who, who just did not believe, or at least claimed to not believe, that the tax system was lawful. Didn't think the government had the right to collect taxes, and so he didn't pay his taxes. So we're, he's on trial. Now, these are simple, straightforward cases. Did you have taxable income? Did you pay your taxes? This isn't, it's not, again, rocket science, okay? And the fact that you might not believe you had to pay your taxes, you might believe that the taxes are unconstitutional, it doesn't matter. That, that's not a defense. The, the elements are, did you pay your, did you owe taxes, did you pay them? Really simple, straightforward. Honest to goodness, the trial is the week of Thanksgiving. So we, we start on a Monday. It's supposed to be, it, it should be, it's really like a, a two-day trial at, at best. You know, we put on the evidence, the guy had, the guy had income. And you put on the evidence that he didn't pay the taxes. And then I, I forget if he testified or not, but but the defense was he didn't believe that you should have to pay taxes. And he didn't believe it was, was legal, which isn't a defense. Now, I'm not saying this guy, he wasn't wasn't a bad guy, wasn't an evil sort of person. But again, that the, you have to pay taxes. That That's just, if you owe taxes, you got to pay them. Got to file a tax return. You, you can't not do that. So it's a really simple, straightforward case. So we, we have the, the jury, and I, I just vividly remember this. Again, it's the week of Thanksgiving. I say they, they get the case maybe Tuesday afternoon, right? Tuesday afternoon. And it's it should be, this is one where vote, it, you, you know, let's select a four-person and let's, you know, okay, fine, let's take the vote, and, you know, it should be convicted. Well, the, the jury 
Tuesday afternoon comes and goes. They don't have a verdict. They say they want to go home. Now, keep in mind, Thanksgiving is Thursday. So the, the, the judge has places to be. A, a lot of the jurors have places to be. You know, the jury, they, they got the ladies on the jury. They, they got a cook thing. They got family coming in from out of town. So they come back on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, and they continue to deliberate, and they continue to deliberate. Well, it becomes apparent that there's one juror, and it was a lady. There's one juror who's like a holdout because she feels sorry for the guy or whatever. So she's like she's like a holdout. So the jury deliberates all through the day Wednesday. So now it's Wednesday evening and the the judge the judge is like, "Okay, if we don't have a verdict today, you're coming back on Thanksgiving." I mean, he's like and it's so they go back into the jury room and then about 20 minutes later they they have a verdict. So the the jurors come in and the they find him guilty. And then the defense asks, can we, we poll the jury? And you, you could tell who the one holdout juror was because when they start polling the jury, every other juror starts staring at this, at this lady. And then, you know, they get to juror whatever. At, back then, you know, we, they'd use the names. So juror, juror number whatever, you know. Um, and then there's this long pause when they when the judge calls her name and you can just tell everybody's like looking at her and then finally really soft you know the question was was this an is your verdict and really soft she says yes and and the the, the judge evans god bless him it, it wasn't like he didn't stop and say are you sure he just said the, the record just said yes and he just kind of blasted on and the guy got convicted he deserved to get convicted and stuff but that's to answer your question why you poll the juror that's exactly why you do it because there might be some juror who is uncomfortable with that verdict or in the time between, you know, they were in the jury room and they come out. Again, it's, it's the equivalent of a Hail Mary pass. I, I never had a juror recant, you know, a, a verdict, but I, I do always remember that case because it came very, very close. All right, let me take a quick break. When we come back, license, I don't need no stinking license. Stick around. We are bad audience. You want the police. You're the police. Where are your badges? Badges. We ain't got no badges. We don't need no badges. I don't have to show you any stinking badges. That, of course, is one of the great lines from the 1948 Humphrey Bogart movie, Treasure of Sierra Madre, that actually, you know, it gets, it's one of these things that gets misquoted over the years because the line is, you know, we... We don't, you know, we don't have no stinking badges. Actually, the, the line is badges. We ain't got no badges. We don't need no badges. I don't have to show you any stinking badges. But it's that is that that famous line. We are we are living that line in today's day and age. But it's not badges. It, it's driver's licenses. And and you know we we talk about this a lot on this program. The fact that if you have a valid driver's license and you have insurance for your car. You you know join join the crowd, but I, I start sort of think that we're all chumps because there's a huge percentage of people who just don't and, and they do not care a, about this and they do this with no consequences at all. This is this is the latest involvement. This story involving this one year old boy who died on, on Friday night. It, it just it gets worse and worse and worse. 31-year-old Milwaukee woman, Now she's now charged in connection with this. Her name is Aunt Antwinisha Burse, Antwinisha Burse, B-U-R-S-E. She is charged right now 
with one count of knowingly operating a motor vehicle without a valid driver's license causing death. I, I think there may be additional charges that, that come out of this, but right now that, that's what it is. And according to the criminal complaint, I mean, here's the deal. Friday night, she apparently, she's with the woman who owns the car and the woman's cousin. And they go to the cousin's house and they have to, the woman and her, and her cousin run into the house to drop off a cat, something like that. And they leave this, this other woman, this Antoinisha Burse, in the car with the, this baby who's in the back in a car seat. The kid is restrained in the car seat, but the car seat isn't attached to the seat. So the, the kid is in the car seat, but the car seat isn't secured, bottom line. So, and this is where the, this whole thing it starts to get weird. The 31-year-old Antoinisha Burse steals the car while the other two are in the house she takes off in the car and it's a little bit unclear but what it sounds like is she is driving at a relatively high rate of speed down the road and according to the criminal complaint based on reasonable inferences given the position of the vehicles bursts traveling southbound crosses into the northbound lane, colliding head-on with another vehicle, with his minivan. So she crosses over, head-on collision. The child, who is in the car seat, but the car seat's not secured, goes flying, and the one-year-old is dead as a result of this. She is taken to the hospital in, in what I guess is just run-of-the-mill routine stuff for the city of Milwaukee nowadays, the car that she slams into, the minivan, that, I don't think authorities have confirmed it, but from what I understand, that was stolen too because everybody in the car gets out and runs. It just scrambles like, again, like those cockroaches you see when you you know walk into the kitchen and you flick on the light and all of a sudden the cockroaches just scramble. Well, okay, the, the people in that van, which I believe was stolen, they all scramble too. So you have... The, the one-year-old that's dead, you have the 31-year-old who took the car, it's crossed over the center lane and smashed in to the car, and it just it's just a horrible situation all around. But then, okay, here's the other dazzling detail. It now turns out, at least according to the criminal complaint, that the, the 31-year-old woman who stole the car, drove, crossed over the center line and smashed into the car, according to the complaint, has never been issued a driver's license not not is driving on a suspended driver's license not is driving on a revoked driver's license but has stolen a car and has never had a driver's license in the first place okay now you might say well jeff okay maybe maybe she did know that she was supposed to have a driver's license well she had previously been found guilty of operating without a driver's license in May of 2022. So she'd already been convicted of doing this, and now she's out doing the same thing. And I dare say, now I have no way of of proving this, but I dare say that this probably the two times, the time that she got caught um, that led to her conviction in May of 2022, and the other night, I dare say, those probably weren't the only two times that she ended up driving without a valid driver's license. And this, 
This is just what happens. It's people driving without a valid driver's license. It's people driving on suspended driver's licenses. It's people driving on revoked driver's licenses. They are out on the street getting beyond the facts of this particular case because she's driving a stolen car that she, that she stole. But the people who are driving without licenses, you know, again, they're, they're without insurance. You, you know, I'm, I'm willing to bet that 95% of the time that that's the case as well. There, there's no insurance that's out there. So if they hit you or when they hit you and they cause injury, well, uh, good luck trying to sue them. Um, because nothing bad is going to happen. Now, in this particular case, because she's driving without a license and she's caused the death of the one-year-old, she's looking at a maximum of six years in prison. Now, if they start tacking on other charges as well, like the death through the stolen car and stuff, that will go up. But as it stands right now, the, the maximum penalty, and that's for causing death, is only six years for driving without a valid driver's license. Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. I, I understand. I understand that there's a, there's a lot of criminal activity that goes on. I understand that there's a lot of car theft. I understand that there's carjackings. I understand that in some respects, driving without a license, it's easy to view this as a not significant thing. I just think we are making a huge mistake in doing that. And those of us who play by the rules, who renew our driver's licenses, who get insurance for our cars, who make sure that our our car registrations are kept in place, who, again, are concerned with the fact that, gee, I don't want to get a speeding ticket because if I get a speeding ticket, that's going to be four points on my license and my insurance rates are going to go up. We're essentially chumps to all those people out there who just don't care. And, you know, this is just an example of it. But my guess is maybe you've been in a situation where you get hit by a car and no valid driver's license, suspended license, revoked license, no insurance, and and you are victimized and essentially nothing happens to the person who is driving without a license. 855-616-1620. That is the old National Bank talk and text line. I think Moving forward, this has got to be a priority. You know, this idea that, oh, it's no big deal, and we know people do it all the time, and we understand if somebody has a driver's license, they still got to get to work or whatever these excuses are. Isn't it time to maybe say no more excuses? This is a big deal, and we are really going to start holding people accountable for doing this. And maybe just like reckless driving, maybe... Maybe this is one where the first time you get caught driving on a suspended or revoked license, okay, it's a fine ordinance violation or whatever. But after that, isn't it time to start making this a crime? Don't we need to start saying, look, driving is a privilege. It is not a right. And these are the rules. And if you're not going to follow the rules, there's going to be accountability. 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. Jeff. My wife was a victim of an unlicensed, uninsured bipolar motorist um, who rammed into the rear end of her car, causing her six years of medical pain, not to mention two days after the crash, her boyfriend tried to report the car stolen. We were on the hook with our insurance company for everything 
bad that happened to her. Jeff, the guy who killed the guy on New Year's Eve who was going to church with his family didn't have a license. Neither did the lady who was who uh, was killed her best friend leaving the party about two months ago. They crashed. She was lying to the cops saying she was sleeping in the back. So sick of hearing all this. I pay good money for my license, my plates, my insurance, my gas. I pay on time every year. I've not had a ticket in 12 years. Most of the cases you hear, the perpetrators end up surviving. Um, yeah, I, I think there's, you know, an element of that. Jeff, just like with all the other often downplayed criminal acts, except when someone dies or is seriously injured as a direct result, we need tough new laws with mandatory incarceration for repeat offenders of driving without a license, reckless driving, car theft, carjacking, etc. I, I agree. And I, I mean, one of the places I would start with driving without a license is it automatically impounding the cars. I, I just... I, I would I would say, okay, you get caught driving on a suspended license, um, your car is going to be impounded, it is going to be towed. If it's your car, you are not getting it back until you show proof of insurance and you show that you've got a license. If you've borrowed somebody else's car, fine. I mean, they're going to have to go down and they're going to have to pay the tow fee. They're going to have to pay the violation fee or whatever. And maybe, just maybe, that'll stop them from lending you your car the the next time. Um, you know, just no question, you know, of, about this. Um, Jeff can't make it a crime. No judges or prosecutors will enforce it. Well, what does that say? I mean, what what does that say if you have prosecutors who won't enforce something like this? This is, in fact, a, a big it's a big deal. This goes along with what we always talk about with like the broken windows form of law enforcement. That is that the, the small things are, are, are big things, become big things. So you catch somebody who's been driving without a license two or three times. They keep doing it because there's no real penalty. Well, okay, then we're surprised that the next time they're driving without a license, they cross over center line and hit and kill somebody. Why bother having licenses in the first place then? We've got to, if we're going to take back the streets, if we are going to make it safe for decent people, the people who play by the rules to be out on the streets, we've got to knock this off. And this is just another one of those classic examples of that. When we come back, some tough love for a political candidate. Stick around. I will explain in just a moment. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. All right. Time for a little bit of tough love. Three weeks from yesterday, there will be a primary election. And everybody who lives in Wisconsin or is a, re- is a voter in Wisconsin will have an opportunity to vote in this race. It is the primary to select the two candidates who will advance to the general election early April, one of whom will be the next Supreme Court justice. And if you haven't been following this, this is an important election because right now the court has a four to three ideological tilt with four conservative justices and three liberal justices. Um, The former chief justice of the state Supreme Court, uh, Patience Rogensack, is retiring after a distinguished career. She is one of the four conservative members. So this is a race where if, in theory, a liberal were to be elected, that would switch the ideological balance on the court. And, you know, who knows, you know, what who knows what rulings could come out. 
There are two liberals that are running in the primary. One is Dane County Judge Everett Mitchell, and the other is a Milwaukee County Judge named Janet Protasewicz, who is, um, she's already been the subject of, of ethics complaints because it, judges aren't supposed to, like, again, indicate how they're going to rule on things, and she's been very clear. I mean, she she's not really running as a judge. She, In my opinion, she's running as she... She wants to be the governor. She's running as governor and saying, put me on the Supreme Court and I'm going to I'm going to vote for this on abortion and I'm going to do this and this and this and this. So she's made no bones about it. She's she is running as if she were a partisan political candidate. There are two conservatives who are running for this. One is Dan Kelly, who is a former justice on the state Supreme Court. Dan Kelly was appointed to the bench by Scott Walker in 2016. He ran for election in 2020 and and lost big time. I mean, he 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 got one pretty bad. I think he got about 44 percent of the vote. The other judicial conservative is running is Waukesha County Judge Jennifer Doro, who has been on the bench for a number of years, but of course she came to to fame with the way that she handled the Daryl Brooks trial. Okay, so two conservatives, two liberals that are running. The general, the conventional wisdom is that one of the conservatives and one of the liberals will emerge. I mean, I, I guess you know, there, there's no guarantee of that. Two, both liberals could emerge, both conservatives. But in all likelihood, you're going to have one liberal. You're going to have one of the conservatives. So that, from the conservative perspective, Jennifer Doro and Dan Kelly. Now, I I haven't offered a lot of commentary on this race, although I certainly am going to after the primaries. But there's been some stuff going on that I just I just feel compelled to comment on, from a purely ideological perspective. I think. Dan Kelly would be fine. I think Jennifer Doro would be fine. I, there, there's just no question about it. I have said this before. I think if Dan Kelly is the one who is nominated, if he's the conservative that emerges, he's going to lose. I, I don't think he is. He wasn't electable before, and I don't know that there's anything that's changed in that dynamic. And this isn't to say that I think he was a bad justice. It's just kind of the the reality that I don't think he can win. I personally think that Jennifer Doro is much more electable. And clearly, I mean, they, they both they both have decent, you know, conservative bona fides. But here's what's been going on. The Kelly campaign, and this is where the tough love has to come in, that that Kelly campaign needs to get over itself. He's got a, a couple people who are working on his behalf who have decided to launch this scorched earth attacks on, on Jennifer Doro. Then, you know, some of the stuff which was fed to, uh, for example, the newspaper and stuff. I mean, the, the word is that's coming from the Kelly campaign or it's coming from people who are associated with Dan Kelly. The, the final, the final step in this was last night there was a candidate debate between the, the two of them and one of the questions is okay if if your opponent is ultimately comes out of the primary will you support them and jennifer doro says yeah if if i if i'm not the if i am not the conservative that comes out of course i'm going to support dan kelly dan kelly says nope 
nope, um, I, or at least he refuses to endorse his opponent if she advances in the primary. And he goes off on this riff about how, well, I, I endorsed one of the other colleagues on the bench, and he's, he's turned out to be a disappointment. You, you know, you just want to say, get over yourself, pal, because, I mean, this is an extremely important election. And I think it's more than a little bit disappointing that you have one of the two mainstream conservative candidates who has decided to take this scorched-earth approach that, um, you know, that's like, OK, if, if it's not going to be me, well, I, I'm not going to say whether I'm going to support the other conservative. Really? I mean, you do seriously need to get over yourself. And there's the things that the Kelly campaign has done and the way it's conducted itself that candidly is very, very disappointing. And this has nothing to do with whether or not Dan Kelly would be a good justice or not. And again, I, I think Jennifer Doro would be the much more electable candidate. Um, maybe I'm wrong. But I think she'd be the much more electable candidate. But again, this I'm not the the way the Kelly campaign has conducted itself, whether it's the bomb throwing um, or whether it's the well, I'm not saying I'm going to support the other conservative. They they really need to grow up. And and I think it's very, very disappointing that this is what it's come to, because this is a very, very important race. There's no doubt about it. And I think. Whatever is going to happen, you know the left is going to be mobilized and the left is going to be unified coming out of this primary, whichever liberal candidate emerges. And now you have another example of at least one of the two conservatives who appears willing to take the Donald Trump approach, kind of let's shoot ourselves in the foot with this. And all that does is help, potentially help the liberal candidate to get elected. And look, the people on the left know that. They're sitting back, they're enjoying some of this stuff that's going on with the infighting that largely is coming from the Dan Kelly campaign. So there's three weeks left in the campaign. I I don't know who is ultimately going to win. I'll make a prediction when it gets closer to that. But, you know, some of these candidates have just got to flat out grow up and recognize that, okay, there are... Obviously, they want to win. I understand that. At the same time, they also maybe have an obligation to these causes that they say that, you know, that that are important to them. And maybe that's, okay. if it's not going to be me, which of the other candidates do I think what I like to see on the Supreme Court bench? And the fact that you've got Dan Kelly refusing to say right away that if it's not him, he's not going to support Jennifer Doro or he's not willing to come out and endorse her right now says to me more about Dan Kelly than it says about anything else. So we've got three more weeks until the primary election. We'll talk a little bit about the race then, but we're going to talk a lot about it after the primary on February 21st. But my message right now to the conservative candidates in general and to the Kelly campaign in particular is, come on, man, grow up. So very glad to have you with us. I am curious as to your reaction to this story, because it's one where it's something that maybe you say, oh, that that's a good thing. I'd like that. But the question becomes, is it something the government should be doing? Joe Biden. Now, Joe Biden is a big government guy on on all these different levels. And what Biden has been doing is through using the executive rulemaking process, he's been using that to kind of bypass Congress. You know, things that you would normally expect would have to be laws. Well, he knows he can't get it through Congress, so he just goes ahead and 
makes these rules so you get what you want without, again, having to involve Congress. And, and to me, even if you agree with the rule, it's a it's a bad process because we are not a country of, of kings, right? We're, we're a country of, of laws. Well, well, here's the deal. Um, the Biden administration today has proposed a rule to limit late fees on credit cards. Now, now hear me out now. Um, when you sign up for a credit card, and, and the credit cards vary. I mean, there, there's diff- different interest rates and there's different late fees if you don't make your payments on time. Now, I'm what, what Clark Howard used to talk about. I'm a freeloader. I mean, I use credit cards, but I pay my, I religiously pay my credit cards off every month. So what I essentially am able to do is I get, you know, whatever, whatever points for whatever card I'm using, whether it's a Southwest credit card or a, you know, a Chase card, whatever. I, I'm, I'm able to get the benefit of using the credit card, but I, I don't, I don't remember ever paying interest. I mean, maybe maybe at some point in time in my life I did, but I don't remember that because I religiously pay those credit cards off because the interest rate is crazy and I don't want to get the late payment fees. So I'm, I'm that freeloader. I take advantage of the free credit that they extend. And other than, you know, if there's an annual fee or something, the credit cards don't get anything out of me. But the way credit card companies make money is, first of all, the, the interest that comes from you know people carrying the balances, and they also make money with late fees. And again, the late fees vary from credit card to credit card. But if you read the small print when you sign up with a credit card, you, you it'll tell you that. And some of the credit card fees, the late fees for not making the minimum payment, they they can be pretty severe. They can they can be um, well, as much as like forty bucks. I mean, it, it's, you know, you don't make your payment on time. It can be up to 40 bucks, but that's what you sign up for, right? And you can always shop around and maybe you can find a credit card with a, a better deal. Anyhow, the Biden administration rolled out a rule today. And what they want to do is they want to have the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, one of their agencies, um, pass a rule which would lower the penalties for late payments or missed payments to $8. So the idea would be a credit card company would not be able to charge you more than $8 for not getting a payment on time. And like I say, now it could be 15, it could be 20, it could be 30, it could be 40. And they say, okay, this is what we want to do. But if we do it by a rule, we don't need congressional approval to do this. Um, So we're going to reduce this. We're going to reduce the fees. So we're not going to penalize people as much. We're not going to let the credit card people penalize people as much for missing payments. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Okay, I want you to think this through. What is your reaction to the government telling credit card companies you can't, you can't charge more than 8 bucks for a late fee? We don't care what the t- contracts are. You can't charge more than $8 for a late fee. Should the government be able to do that? Are you comfortable with the government doing that? And if they do, if they do, could this be something where there's, again, that law of unintended consequences kicks in? 855-616-1620, that's the old National Bank talk and text line. Should the government be simply be able to come in and say, we're not going to let you charge more than 8 bucks for somebody who misses a payment on a credit card? 855-616-1620, we discuss in a moment. 
855-616-1620. So the Biden administration today is rolling out this rule, which, if it is enacted, would say that credit card companies couldn't charge more than $8 for a late payment. Right now, some charge twenty twenty-five for the first, and then it can go up to like 40 if you keep missing payments. And the Biden administration says, no, we're, we're not going to let them do that. Well, I've got two problems. First of all, I... I I don't think it's government's business to regulate that. I mean, God knows there's a lot of credit cards that are out there, and you can negotiate. You can find a credit card that if if you're a chronic late payer, well, maybe you want a credit card that doesn't have as high a fee. Secondly, okay, I, I don't think we necessarily need to do anything to encourage people not to pay their credit card bills or not pay them on time. Third, I mean, and this is the law of unintended consequences. If you're if you're not making payments on the credit card, okay, the interest is still going to be going up and up and up. And if you're not even making those minimum payments, my guess is if you do the math, you might end up you might end up owing more in the interest payments than you would if you were making the the original payment in the first place. So I'm not sure you're really going to be helping consumers. But I come back with the basic point. This is a credit card arrangement. You don't have a right to a credit card. It is a business transaction between you and the credit card company. And I think the credit card company has the right to say, okay, these are our rules. These are our interest rates. If you don't want it, go somewhere else. This is what our penalty is if you don't make a payment on time. And then you either make the payment on time or you don't take out the credit card. But I don't think the government should be stepping in and regulating that. 855-616-1620. Jeff, it should be up to the credit card companies. It's called capitalism. And you're right. There will be unintended consequences, and they most likely will hurt responsible consumers like you and I, Jeff, if I ran the credit card, I would say, great, instead of 13 point uh, percent interest, I'll charge you 25 percent. Well, that's it. Jeff, pay your freaking bills and live within your means. Um, what the heck is going on in this country? Aren't there responsible people? Jeff, this rubs me the wrong way. My husband and I always pay off our credit cards as well. The credit card company should be able to charge what they want. People need to take care of their own budgets and manage their own money. And, and look, here's I mean, here's here's what happens as a practical matter. If you are a good credit card customer and you're making your payments all the time and something happens and your payment gets lost in the mail or whatever that is, chances are you call that credit card company and if you've got a good record, they're, they're going to waive that one. They're, they're going to waive that. That's what will happen because they want to keep the good customers that are out there. But I just don't think the government should be coming in and saying this this is what the limitation is going to be. It's sort of like, check fees okay you know there my guess is your bank will charge you if you bounce a check all right do we really want the government telling you how much how the government saying to the bank this is what they can do this is the most you can charge with an overdraft fee or is this something that's better for the free market to come in and if x bank you know the the bank of charlie says we're going to charge you twenty dollars for you know your first overdraft fee well maybe that's an opportunity the bank of jeff comes in and says hey you know we're we're going to let you write an overdraft the first two you're not going to get penalized at all i mean isn't that what the free market is all about Eight five five six one six one six twenty. let's start with danny in janesville danny you're on wtmj hey jeff how you doing good what do you think well, I agree with you where, yeah, there's the unintended consequences where people get even more in debt because they figure, well, you know, the late payment's nothing, no, let's just not worry about it. But on top of that, 
It's like, okay, why is the government sticking their nose into the credit card companies that charge exorbitant rates for late fees when the IRS does exactly the same thing? <laughs> Danny, take $10 out of petty cash, wherever you keep that petty cash. Yeah, yeah that, that's it. I don't see the Biden administration going to the IRS and saying, okay, here's what we're going to do. You're, if, if you underpay on your, your taxes, you know, you don't, you don't pay enough estimated taxes, or you don't file in a timely fashion, you're right. I don't see them talking about how the IRS is going to make We're going to put a limit on what the IRS can charge you. No, no, no. They're not talking about reducing that. But the credit card people, we're going after them. Right. Now, with a credit card, you know, if you don't pay a credit card, they're not going to take your house. But the IRS, Uh, oh, yeah, they'll take your house, your car, your wife, and everything else. <laughs> well, thanks for the call, Danny. Right, they're also not going to seize your. They're not going to seize your bank account, right? You you don't trust me. If if you don't, if you take nothing away from the three hours of the program today, you do not want to mess with the IRS. That's some just free advice from a former federal prosecutor and a, a recovering attorney. You do not want to mess with the IRS. But that's the that's the bigger point. See, you see one of these things, and that was my reaction to the, this story at first. Oh, if people look at it and say, oh, that, that's great. Joe Biden is coming in, and Joe Biden is he he's going to look out for me. He's going to limit the amount of, of late fees that a credit card company could charge. Oh, that, that would be great. Well, okay, there's all these unintended consequences. But even more importantly, is, is, that, is that the role of the government or is that the role of the free market? And if you want to avoid this whole thing, you know, even if you don't pay off your credit card balances – which, you know, you're leaving yourself up to paying huge amounts of interest, at least make that minimum payment. I don't think that's too much to ask for. The, the, those ads for Pajama Graham and, you know, I, I do them over Christmas and, and Valentine's Day. They're, they're just a great sponsor. And they always generate all sorts of emails from people who, again, we have the debate between I say pajamas, you say pajamas. And I, I think both both are correct. You don't say you don't say Bahamas. You say Bahamas. But I understand there, there's other examples you could give. But here's here's the text, Jeff. I always used to laugh at the way you'd say pajamas, and then you'd say that they were naturally nude until you did the commercial and said they're really not nude. They just feel like that, and and that's that's true. I mean, my wife has a pair of that. They're they're black, but they're not they're not see through or anything like that. But they're just really soft. So, anyways, the texter says, okay, so I ordered some for my wife, and she simply loves them. They really are the greatest thing in the world. Thank you. Okay, so. So there's an unsolicited sort of testimonial about that. So check it out. They're around for Valentine's Day. Hey, but before I do the cigarette topic, I, I did want to mention a couple things. And I, I understand that there's some people who, who just cannot get enough of politics. And there's other people who say, oh, my God, I can't believe we're going to talk about politics again. But it is kind of interesting heating up Nikki Haley. Um, Nikki Haley is in the next two weeks apparently going to be announcing that she is running for president um nikki haley is the former governor of south carolina she was the ambassador to the united nations uh during the trump administration if you have ever had an opportunity to meet nikki haley she's the she's the real thing i mean she's just she is the real deal ron desantis on the campaign trail i suspect that he is going to run tim scott who i had a chance to meet when uh, we interviewed him on the program i I made my exception i typically don't interview politicians but um during the campaign a couple weeks before the november elections he was in milwaukee um with with ron johnson and i had a chance to, to meet him at an event the day before we had him on the uh we had him on the program and you know tim uh, Tim Scott is is the real 
no question, you know, he's the real thing. So you, you have a number of these people who are, are, are they're actually they're the next generation of Republican leaders, and they're 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 not letting Donald Trump um, scare them out. On top of that, uh, Trump announced his fundraising for the first weeks, you know, since he announced it, and I think it's fair to say he he is underperforming. Um, the Trump campaign said they had raised nine point five million dollars from November fifteenth when he announced he was running through the end of twenty twenty two, and you might say, oh, well, nine point five million. Um, that's that's not very much money that amounted to an average of about 200 grand a day which is a lot of money to you and me but if you're running for president it's it's really not that much money so trump underperforming and more and more candidates apparently committing that they're they're going to get in it's going to be i'm going to tell you something it's it's going to be a fascinating year and a half or, or two years and of course wisconsin will definitely be in play and i'm sure all the candidates will be spending some time with us all right all right cigarettes i, I i've never been a smoker i mean i have have i had a cigarette over the course of my life yes but you know not too many and uh, cigars Every I used to every once in a while have a cigar. I stopped doing that just because I figured it wasn't good for me years and years ago. So I, I just I, it's been years and years since I've had a, a cigar and I don't don't smoke cigarettes. I'm glad I don't smoke cigarettes. I'm not I am not lecturing people who do other than the fact that, as we've talked about before, it it's a look, it's a bad habit. There, there's just no question about it. I mean, it's. You you can argue, I guess, about how bad it is for you health wise, but we're talking about a a matter of degree. I do these these freighter everyday health features, and it's amazing how many different health issues we we talk about month to month to month. And one of the questions I always ask the doctors is, okay, well, what what can people do to avoid this or avoid developing this? And I, I swear to I swear. If we do we do twelve in a year, I'll bet you eight out of that twelve they'll say, well, first you got to stop smoking. If you smoke, stop it because this is not good for you. So again, I'm not lecturing, but that's just kind of the reality. And cigarettes cost a lot of money. Here's the interesting story, though. Oh, about a week or so ago, I saw somebody who was smoking, and they had one of those packs of Marlboro cigarettes. Remember back. There was a there was a time when you could actually advertise cigarettes on television, and then you could advertise cigarettes in um, in in magazines and things like that. And Marlboro created the Marlboro Man, and that was the 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 symbol of independence. And it was the Western guy. It was the cowboy, you know, who was sitting there on the horse with the you know with the, smoking the Marlboro cigarettes. And, and Marlboro cigarettes became best-selling cigarettes, you know, some of the best-selling cigarettes in the country. Um, here's the deal. This is the story that's just out. The Altria Group, which is the largest U.S. cigarette maker, said its cigarette sales volume plummeted about 12% in the la- latest quarter. The company's revenue fell 2.3%. And, and what they're finding is that um, with, with inflation, with costs going up, People are smoking less. Okay, that that's number one. They're they're cutting down on their smoking, but secondly, they're switching to cheaper cigarettes. Um, Altria, whose flagship Marlboro brand is in the premium price tier, 
had steeper declines in 2022 than the industry overall. A pack of Marlboro costs on average $8.46, including taxes, $8.46. Marlboro's U.S. market share declined by 0.4 percentage points um, in the fourth quarter. Meanwhile, their discount brands um, increased stuff. Sales are climbing for cheap brands of cigarettes like Maverick um, and Montego. Never heard of either one of those. They say smokers began switching to cheaper cigarettes early last year, and that trend has accelerated as higher prices are causing people to switch. Okay, our number, 855-616-1620. That is the old National Bank talk and text line. We, we don't, don't have a lot of time for this, but I, I, I am curious is rising has rising prices has inflation has the pandemic is is that causing you to to switch and i guess if you're a cigarette smoker are you remaining brand loyal or are you trying to find those those cheap cigarettes where you can still get your nicotine fix without necessarily dropping eight dollars and fifty cents for a pack of cigarettes eight five five six one six one six twenty that's the old national bank talk and text line are you staying brand loyal? And while this is the, the initial conversation is cigarettes, there, there are other things that as well, ranging from bourbon to beer to toilet paper. I mean, is, is inflation causing you to switch your products? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. I love that song. Okay, what we're talking about is is the, the company that makes Marlboro cigarettes, and Marlboro cigarettes is a premium price product, and it, it's it's a market leader. Um, what they're seeing is that the, the number of people smoking Marlboro cigarettes is declining, and what they see is there's a major switch that's going on from the so-called premium types of cigarettes to the, the cheaper cigarettes, including brands that I, I've never heard of before, Maverick, Montego, um, all those. And I, I guess it kind of comes into the category of is if you are a smoker, I mean, is life too short? Now, your life is going to be shortened a little bit, but is life too short to, to smoke cheap cigarettes? Is is inflation, is what's been going on, is that affecting market share on things? Uh, let's talk to Lita. Lita, you're on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for my call. Hi, Lita. Hey, Lita, where are you from? Where are you calling from? Teresa, Wisconsin. Teresa, okay. I won't tell you what my producer put up there. I'm familiar with most places in Wisconsin. I'm thinking, I've never heard of this. Teresa, I have heard of and have been there. Okay, I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> Go ahead, Lita. Oh, okay. So about 10 weeks ago, my husband and I started rolling our own. And once we paid for the machine and stuff, we pay a dollar a pack right now. And uh, I put $100 away a week, and I have $800 saved. I know it's not <laughs> healthy for us, but I'm 60, I'm 63 years old, and I've been smoking a long time. <laughs> okay, so do you mean, do you notice a, do you notice a, a difference in taste? Was it, has it been tough to make that change from whatever you used to smoke to rolling your own? No, to tell you the truth, I think it's just a habit, and I can't tell the difference. Interesting. Interesting. Thanks for the call, Lita. I appreciate it. Jeff, I roll my own as well. 
One pound costs less than $20, and you can make four cartons of cigarettes. 855-616-1620. Lita, thank you for joining us. Let's, uh, let's see. Uh, Jeff, good to- Let's see. Jeff, uh, good topic for me. It depends on the product. Some I don't see. I don't see much difference between Tylenol and generic acetaminophen, but there's a big difference between deli cold cuts and packets generic meats. Um, yeah, Jeff, whenever I shop for groceries, I found I tend to go for products in the store brand category since name brand products end up being much more expensive. Jeff in Fox Point. Jeff, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, Jeff. So like 14 years ago when I was a hardcore smoker, I always had to have Marlboro Lights. I was very brand loyal. Um, and I think it was because of because of the addiction. But now for something like coffee, now that I'm not a smoker, but I, you know, for something that I do on a regular basis, though, um, I do shift around from coffees, but I do have different brands that I that I prefer. Yeah, you know, that's, um, you know, it, it, it's interesting that you say that because I, I still I still remain brand loyal but I, I tend to wait. My, my wife, in particular, this is kind of like the royal we. Like, for example, she she we're, we're diet coke drinkers and all, and we will mm-hmm. wait. We will wait till we see like diet coke on sale, and then we'll just buy a whole bunch of it. It'll be like, oh, oh, diet coke was on sale for like three ninety nine a twelve pack. It's so and so, and I bought four. Get your butt over there. You buy four as well. Um, so I'm still buying the Diet Coke, but we're kind of like looking for the sales as opposed to, gee, it's seven ninety nine. No way I'm spending seven ninety nine for a twelve pack. Yeah, I love Bears Brothers Coffee. Whenever I see that on sale at the store, I'll take advantage of it and I, and I will kind of stock up and I'll buy like three packs instead of one. But if it's yeah. something I'm not as excited about, then I'll just be like, oh, I'll just buy enough for like this week. Yeah, no, I understand. Thanks for calling, Jeff. I I get it. I guess I'm, I'm still. You know, you talk about coffee, and I I'm still I'm still brand loyal. For me, I I order I order this coffee and coffee and chicory from the Cafe du Monde in in New Orleans. I I get that, and that's that's I guess that's the the thing. There's some things that I, I'm still like I want to treat myself on on this, and like life's too short to drink bad coffee and stuff like that. So I do treat myself in some regards, but I think this is is an interesting sort of thing, and and I guess I was curious as to how brand loyal cigarette smokers would be, and I think it's interesting. I'm actually getting texts from a couple people who that's what they started to do. What our first caller Lita did, they've started. They haven't given up smoking, but they've started to like make their own cigarettes and stuff. And by if you're willing to to do that, and you can do that once you buy the machine you can do it for a lot less so who who knew um the marlboro man gets kind of knocked off his horse because of this hey one just one quick note um the stock market which was down most of the day the dow jones was it was down a couple hundred points it's now just about even the nasdaq um, NASDAQ's up, uh, what's it up? It's up uh, 220 points right now. They're heading for the close, and so we'll have the final numbers in just a little bit. But what happened was the Federal Reserve came out and they announced that they were going to have a smaller interest rate increase than they have done over the past like year, and the market's responding positively to that. The Dow, Dow looks like to me it's going to finish maybe slightly in the red. The NASDAQ's going to finish up a couple percentage points. The S&P is going to finish up. Um, Wall Street responding well to some of the inflation news.